0: Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Andrea Dominic,
1: And I'm Emily Friedlander. You're listening to The Culture Journalist, a podcast about culture in the age of platforms.
0: Today we're talking about biography, the late great hip-hop artist Mac Miller, and the question of who owns an artist's narrative. And Emily, you were just telling me that you have a Mac Miller story of your own, right? Yeah, I do. I met him couple of
1: times back when I was working at the fader we did a cover of him Andrew Nas wrote it it's excellent and at one point I was invited to a birthday dinner of a person who worked with him on his team and I didn't really interact with him much like I had only occasionally interacted with him in a professional way and he was sitting like all the way at the other end of this long table kind of keeping to himself, but what was astonishing to me. And I actually tweeted about this after he passed was that he kind of quietly got up like maybe three quarters into the meal and left. And I was like, Hmm, I wonder, I wonder why he peaced. And then at the end of the night, we went to pay the bill and he had paid the whole thing himself, like just not anybody and dipped out. And I thought that that was kind of a nice glimpse into who he was as a person and kind of in keeping with like what I thought about him. But it was just very like touching that he did that.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, that sounds like everything I've ever heard about him. I mean, I I wasn't fortunate enough. To have a story where I interacted with him directly. But, you know, there was this period of time in music where his presence was inescapable, whether it was like a mutual friend or just hearing colleagues tell stories like yours. You know, I remember like going to a party at an artist's house once and there was just a giant portrait of him with Mac Miller, like, above the piano. Like a photo
1: or a painting?
0: If I recall correctly, I think it was kind of a, a photo that had been turned into a painting or, like, an artistic or, like, a combination of the two. But it, like, took up, like, the whole wall. Love that. Yeah, yeah. It was really beautiful because it was right after he died and it was just, like, oh, you know? Mm. And then, of course, I remember his incredible NPR, Tiny Desk concert going viral and everyone passing that around and that turning a lot of people onto him and adding this whole other layer of depth and understanding to his artistry. And then of course, I remember getting the news that he had died. This is when I was an editor at Noisy and it was announced, you know, a few days later there was going to be this giant tribute show at the Hollywood Bowl. And that was really last minute. And I remember like just rushing to try to find a writer, to cover it, but you know it had to be a really specific writer that was passionate about Mac and you know knew his work really well and like the meaning of this event, because as an editor, I wanted to do that story justice, you know, and so it was actually like harder than I thought it would be to find someone, but he ended up doing a great job. All of which is to say when you think of Mac Miller's story, it kind of becomes hard to cleave it from your own.
1: Yeah, like, especially in the internet age, it's just hard to say who an artist's story really belongs to. Like, even if we haven't met them in person, we all have tales of the ways their music has woven itself into our lives, kind of becomes the soundtrack of an era. But when music journalist Paul Cantor set out to write a book about Mac, whose generosity and infectious kindness were as palpable on record as they were in his day-to-day interactions, came up against that question in the most literal way possible.
0: Right. Though Paul had secured the participation of a number of Mac's closest friends and collaborators after his tragic passing, which was from a drug overdose in 2018 when he was just 26, Mac's family wasn't happy. In fact, they published a statement on Instagram telling people not to talk to Paul. They said, To artists, management, and friends, there is a writer doing a Mac Miller biography that some of you have been approached about or will be. This book is not authorized slash approved by Mac's family or estate. We are not participating and prefer you don't either if you personally knew Malcolm.
1: In time, the family made it clear that they would be supporting a competing biography instead. The Book of Mac, Remembering Mac Miller by music journalist Donna Claire Chessman. The only authorized biography of the two. But after years of research and hundreds of hours of interviews and what his publicist described to us as a massive bullying campaign, the family had publicly disavowed his work on the internet, after all, Paul's book, Most Dope, The Extraordinary Life of Mac Miller, finally hit bookstores this year. And despite its unauthorized status, It's an exhaustive, strikingly intimate account of the places, people, societal forces, and personal demons that shaped Mac's singular view of the world, even down to the history of the neighborhood in Pittsburgh where he grew up.
0: On today's episode, which we happen to record on what would have been Mac's 30th birthday, we discuss the controversy's impact on Paul's experiences reporting and writing the book, and the role of the biographer in a world where artists have unprecedented control over their own narratives. We'll also take a hard look at what Mac's story can tell us about the fraught relationship between mental health and music, and how Mac's evolution as an artist and public figure reflected wider changes in technology, the music industry, and public discourse in the late aughts and the tens. You're listening to the free version of The Culture Journalist. Before we dive in, we wanted to let you know that we recently dropped the first installment of a new series called Offline Rex, which is a monthly compendium of the movies, music, books, meals, and other cultural ephemera that we can't stop thinking about, regardless of where they fit in the news cycle. We're making the March edition of this newsletter available to everyone, but you can sign up for a paid subscription for just five bucks a month to receive this roundup every month along with our full podcast episodes and other goodies. And now, on to the show. Hey, guys, we're back with Paul Cantor. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to uh, talk to you.
0: So to get started, what drew you to Mac as a subject? Like, what What surprised you after you started reporting this story?
2: I mean, I think one thing right off the bat that drew me to him was at the end of his life, he had become a bit of a tabloid version of himself. I was really kind of fascinated by how a narrative about him and who he was attached to how he passed, connected to who he was, you know, in his actual life. In my book, I talk about receiving his music from a publicist very early on in his career, really before anybody knew who he was. So I'd been dialed into the Mac Miller ecosystem pretty much from day one. And I knew he was a really passionate and super talented creative person. He was a rapper but it was a lot of things. He also was a really good person, you know, to a lot of people, which I think is a narrative that is out there about him, but his relationship seemed to have taken on a life of its own. And there was a bit of like a coloring of a sort of downward spiral, so to speak, that I just didn't know if it really matched up with the person that he he really was. So I had a lot of questions about that. I think I was also interested in the 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 kind of tug of war that he might have been dealing with throughout his career this question of like what does it do to a person when you know the thing that gives you your superpowers is also your kryptonite frankly there was some press about him that came out right before his passing which i read because i was a fan and i always read things that came out about him and the stuff that was published was really really good but it didn't connect to the fact that he had just passed away. It was just like, okay, something was happening here that was not reported either because it wasn't brought up or it was obscured or there was some element of it that just didn't make it into those pieces. I thought that was really interesting to have journalism come out like three or four days before you die or something, and it doesn't say anything about this stuff. It could just be circumstances, right? But you don't know until you start digging into it.
0: You said you heard his music pretty early on. What was it about him as an artist that, and his music that struck you or that made you become the fan that,
2: that would lead you to also write this book? First and foremost, I think he was a, a really good rapper. from. Early on, I want to say that was 2009, you could tell he was really you know, talented. He, he rapped a lot different earlier in his career than he did in his later career. He had a much more unique type of flow. It was very like him. It was his own thing. The early part of his career, at least the first two years, that is very noticeable about him. I also thought he was a really interesting producer. He seemed to know a lot about producing not be that inclined to like take ownership of that basically he he would allow other people to produce even though he knew how to produce he wasn't a a really a great producer probably until 2012 or 13 or so when he really you know started locking in and like saying hey i'm gonna produce a whole mixtape for vince staples who's an otherwise unknown rapper at that time you can really like hear him kind of coming into his own and finding just what he wanted to say with the music.
0: So you embarked on doing this book and then what pushback did you receive after you started working on it and how did that impact you and also the reporting process?
2: I didn't receive a lot of pushback. That's actually (laughs) I guess the interesting thing about this is that there's this perception that there was a pushback and there really wasn't. I had a lot of support almost from day one, from people around him. Before I even started on anything, I went to many people that were close to him and asked them, you know, how would you feel about this? And what would this look like? And am I the right person to do this? And it was almost unanimous that, you know, there was support. Yes, he would be honored, you know, if you did this, like somebody of your, not just of your stature, because I don't think that's the right word, but just like a person like you doing it <laughs> because the person who's asking the questions is a human being at the end of the day. And that becomes a big part of what you know the book becomes. A different kind of person asks different kind of questions. They write the sentences in a different kind of way. They put the story together in a different kind of way. What they're trying to communicate is different. I think some of his longtime friends knew me for many years so they they knew my reputation and they knew people that i'd done stories on and they just knew i was like a a decent person i think (laughs) and they were like yeah i mean verbatim this is what he would have wanted he didn't live his life you know the way he did to not have someone write him down he'd be honored another friend very explicitly said his story belongs to the world someone has to tell it you know I think they liked the approach that I was taking, which was to try to talk to all of them and try to make everyone feel seen, right? Because as anybody who's raised a child or anybody who's made anything knows, it takes a village. So I thought, who was the village? Who are these people? I tried to get the family's support. I I didn't know if they would be involved necessarily because it was like a... A tragic situation, and there was no expectation there. But they just just chose not to, and not to get involved. They didn't really like the idea. But again, there was a lot of um, support from other people, and they were like, "No, man, you got to do this. Keep keep writing, keep going." So there was conflict there. Even that was interesting to me, right? To see sort of two families you know like this one family that's over here and like then like a biological family that's over here and that in and of itself was like a story of its own that that like was putting me down a rabbit hole and there was a lot there but i don't really know (laughs) what the what the answer is i mean i speculate but i don't really like to deal too much in you know what i think I i like to deal with what i know to the second part of your question I think there was a great ability to be honest. I was interested in just getting to something real. So, yeah, whatever pushback did exist, I mean, it, it, it sucked. But I think if you read the book, you can see it's a very, you know, honest book. Insensitive to, certainly.
0: Yeah, I understand you want to be delicate here, but you know it's also our understanding. And I mean, to even quote your publicist, that you were subjected to quote a, a massive bullying campaign, and you know ultimately this biography was quote unquote unauthorized. So just kind of wondering if you could talk more specifically about said bullying campaign, kind of what what you experienced and how you read that context. Like obviously, I understand you can only speak to your experience with that.
2: Yeah, that whole thing was you know. In a word, it was and is disgusting. I can't really mince words about it. You know, people sending me death threats, threatening my, you know, child who's a baby. It really not cool stuff. It's a little hard for me to talk about because it's like, it hits me in a spot that's really, uh, I don't know what the right word is for it, and... Yeah, I, I just think people need to be mindful of what the fuck they're doing, you know, and who they're talking to. It's like out of control, <laughs> you know, what people feel inclined to tell a person, you know, telling them to kill themselves. I just don't want to see that, you know what I mean, for myself or for anyone. It makes it difficult to do this kind of stuff, you know. Um, it's hard to write stuff, you know what I mean, and tell the truth and be honest when people are doing that shit to you. Because as I, would say to anybody is like, you really only need one of these people to, you know, take up the arms of whatever the command may be, whether intentional or unintentional. And that's it. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's a tough situation. But like I said, what I was doing had a lot of support. And I always felt that what I was writing, I believed that the work would, you know, sort of take care of that.
1: Yeah. And I know that members of Max family released a statement saying, like, don't participate in this book, don't buy this book, etc. I'm assuming that that was at least one of the catalysts for this sort of online swarm. But it's interesting because biographers historically have been the subject of pushback from family members and estates. There are many examples of that I'm curious, what, if anything, feels new here compared to what a journalist in your spot might have experienced in the past?
2: I don't think it's that new, necessarily. Um, I mean, a really great example that a lot of people talk about is Kitty Kelly and Frank Sinatra. I'm told, or at least I heard that Frank had put a hit out on her or something Mm -hmm. to that effect. He did threaten to sue her for a lot of money and stuff like that. She was scared, I know, because I talked to her personally about this. She was afraid, you know what I mean? Like, she was a good journalist. She was a fact-checker at the Washington Post. All her shit was on the up and up. But just Frank, who was alive at the time, just did not want to be written about in that manner. And, you know, he threatened her. But it was different because she existed at a little bit of a distance. She wasn't online having to manage her persona or her brand that's what journalism is now it's a bunch of people with twitter accounts <laughs> basically tweeting links to their work i'm sorry i gotta like be honest or i can't really do anything you know what i mean be honest. yeah like it's a bunch of people who have to sell themselves in a third grade level conversation right <laughs> all of what we're talking about is like a third grade conversation the truth It has no pushback. You know what I mean? Like you can't cancel a fact. You know who cancels books? Nazis. You know who tries to get things unpublished? Nazis. (laughs) Like that's what it is. And I can't, you know, help but feel that that is like the environment a lot of people are operating in. It used to be that, you know, you had institutions who had some sort of protection over you. What do we call the press, right? It's the third estate. It's a thing unto its own, right? You don't fuck with that you know, it gets access because it's the press, you get a press pass, you get to walk on the crime scene. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, there's unbelievable access that you get by calling yourself that, right?
0: It makes sense. I have a lot of respect for what you said earlier about you were just going to let the work that you put in speak for itself. And that used to be the core, right, of what journalism operated around. And, you know, something we find ourselves talking A lot about on this show is the fact that that that's can be like a luxury at best in this world where you're having to promote an interface and protect a reputation that shouldn't be attacked in the
2: first place for just literally doing your job as a journalist for sure and I and look I don't want to make it you know that it's all about me I don't even want to be talking about any of this stuff I didn't even want to do any press around this (laughs) not because I I didn't want to promote what I was doing. They've been waiting my whole life for people to ask me a question about something. But the truth is I don't want to be the story in any sense. Anybody who picks this book up can tell. There's nothing about me in it other than just telling you what my connection to, to Max music is. i go through great efforts to not editorialize or project or offer my opinion. It's not about thinking. It's about reporting, right? This is a accurately reported book, you know, based on hundreds of hours of interviews and thousands and thousands of pages of transcripts with people close to mac and not so close people that you know worked with him so on and so forth this is just basic journalism right i went to journalism school even though i might you know sometimes joke around on the twitter and and be a funny personality or whatever i have a background in this apparently writing down a fact is wrong now (laughs) you know what i'm saying
1: So kind of talking about this environment for journalists, the internet has created a situation where artists can speak with fans directly and where they have kind of an unprecedented control over their own narratives. How has this situation, in your view, complicated the question of who owns an artist's story, if at all?
2: I think that like the fans think they own it. And they might to some extent or another, right? I don't really believe anyone owns anything. That's the truth. Not to get all philosophical, but I mean, you own this moment and you own this breath and we own this conversation we're having. But outside of that, who's to say, does the Grand Canyon own the Grand Canyon? No. There's a lot of people that think they own that, right? Native Americans, white people, some rich dude who flies in with a helicopter for an Instagram photo shoot. But... If you want to take a picture of the Grand Canyon or paint it or write about it, you can just do that. If you're in the public space, you don't own shit. You know, it's open to whoever wants to do it. So I don't think that that's new. It's just a continuation of it. The hard part for journalists now is to sift, you know, the real from the fake, right? Because artists do control their own narrative and can speak to, to fans directly how do you prevent yourself from reporting on bullshit, right? Things that aren't true. Projections of the superego that, that occurs when you have the power to be your own MTV by turning your phone on and going on Instagram Live. There's really nothing to, to stop you know anyone from doing that sort of thing. And that kind of makes it hard for a journalist to kind of sift through a lot of that stuff. They're creating so much data. And and so much of their own storytelling, but a lot of it is up to interpretation of whether it's real or it's fake. A lot of these things are a snapshot of, of something, but they aren't really what's real. In fact, that was a goal of the book. Mac was a person who shared a lot of himself online. He actually documented himself almost exhaustively. It was like, okay, there is a public version of this person. But, where does that connect to the the not so public version of him, and how can we find out what that is and That was what I was trying to do to some degree or another without being invasive.
1: I feel like in the last decade in the music journalism field, there's just a lot of conversation about access journalism, and I feel like the forum had traditionally relied a lot on access. To talent. And there was a lot of discussion and articles, I remember, kind of about how, oh, what do we do if Beyonce or Kanye won't participate in an article unless they have full creative control over the article? And is journalism just going to disappear? Are journalists not necessary anymore? And I think that we've like come out some years from that conversation and like your book is an example of the right around basically, and that we don't have to think of it in the way that we maybe thought of it 10 years ago.
2: Yeah, that's true. Have either of you seen The House of Gucci? I have the screener, but I haven't gotten around to it yet. Okay, there's a great line in that movie. It's like, everybody's an insider with Gucci. Everybody's on the inside. It's all like family business. And there's this one guy, he's kind of not a family member, And somebody says, how the hell could you know anything about this, right? You're not a Gucci. And he says, well, sometimes it takes an outsider to tell you what's really going on. (laughs) To me, like that is what a journalist is supposed to do, right? You're not supposed to be that close. You are supposed to be a third party. And it's also your agency as a creative person imbued with the powers to think and feel and question and ask and, and write things down to do that. You get to look at the Grand Canyon and say, this is what it looks like. Just like you get to look at Beyonce and say, this is what it looks like. Because I'm public doesn't mean you get to mediate what a person does. Access journalism can be good. I actually don't think there's anything wrong with it. It depends on you know what level of access it is and the level of comfort that the person has with you. I'll give you a good example of, of of where access journalism actually can go wrong, or maybe not work out exactly as planned. I did a piece with J Cole a couple of years ago. J Cole hadn't done an article in like four or five years. Me and him spent some time getting to know each other before we even did the article. Actually, a couple of years we'd been like kind of talking. Always with a plan. Like I'd like to do something on you, and when the time came to do that. He said, I got to call this guy. I captured a lot of moments with him when I was reporting that piece. Spent like, you know, four or five days with him. You know, there was some time that we we spent on a set of a video that he was shooting where he was with his son. who was really young. I mean, he wasn't even one year old yet. They were really these beautiful moments. And me, when I'm working on something like that, I see myself like a camera. I'm just capturing, right? So I said to him, are you okay with me capturing this beautiful moment with your son you're directing the video he was paying for the video out of his pocket it was a lot of money it was hundreds of thousands of dollars this was like some hype williams type fucking thing from like the 90s that he was doing mm-hmm. but he's he's literally looking through the camera directing it with one hand and he has his son in the other hand honestly as a parent today thinking about this moment like he puts tears in my eyes It was like one of the most beautiful things i had like, ever seen, I was like, This is a great moment, and I'm pretty sure that p- that part of it got cut out of the article. And when it got cut out, he said, What the hell happened to that? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I said, Yeah, I think that there was a little bit of uh, almost like a just a discomfort with how you know, like, novel this was, just to see this parenting moment almost like we can't expect this from a rapper so let's take it out of it and there was a lot of things that went into the editing of the piece you know that took things like that out of it so here was somebody who was giving me this access that was amazing right it was beautiful nobody even knew he had a son they all thought he had a, a daughter you know nobody knew this kid's name nothing and i wanted to respect the kid's privacy and all that but he was like no no put it in i like that i love that i love the way that looks you know what i mean like i'm totally okay with you presenting me if you want and you feel this is important we're doing it this way and none of that made it in there like there's a person giving you access and then the person who's actually making the decision on what the article is going to be doesn't really think that that's interesting and so now you have like some conflict there totally
1: And I think your book is also just a beautiful example of what happens when you don't have that access and you go and just try to meet everyone he's ever interacted with and get to know his city and try to walk in his shoes. And it shows that so much can be done without that in place. Obviously, it's like a moot point for Mac Miller under these terrible circumstances, but I just wanted to put that out there.
2: No, I I appreciate that. A lot of those stories that are in there that are coming from the friends a lot of people don't know any of that stuff nobody knows he had a guy say the n word on a you know on a tour and then he had to like fire the guy over it that's completely new you know information right that when you look at the context of his career and being labeled like a certain way oh he's a white rapper it's like no this is a guy he literally got rid of some guy he grew up with because he just, what he stood for didn't align with something he said, right? And that speaks a lot to his character. Uh, Hopefully people, you know, latch onto those things. I think they they have so far. Most of the people that have read it really love it. You know, everyone's very complimentary. The only people who aren't are people who haven't read it.
0: Yeah. I think in this era of, you know, fan armies and and artists being so precious or their teams being so precious with their narratives, it's easy to forget that, A, we're telling stories, right? And the artists in these stories serve as like vectors for larger contexts and situations about, you know, why does the art move us? It's because of these communities around them. It's because of these stories about the city and the people. They don't exist in voids. And I think somewhere along the line, that's kind of gotten distorted, where it's it's become viewed that someone's story should exist in a void.
2: Yes. I mean, one of the great examples of this is somebody like Bob Dylan, right? There's a thousand books on Bob Dylan. I don't think he's been involved in any of them. And he's alive, right? This is how bodies of knowledge are formed. You create new things based on things that came before and you advance the conversation. I've heard from a lot of people who have responded to different interviews that I've done. I had somebody email me and they said, you know, I actually had no interest in this person. In fact, I had negative interest. But you made him sound so compelling that I wanted to go listen to his music and see what he was really about. And I came away really impressed. You added a lot of depth that I would not have had without this. And I feel like that's an important part of documenting culture, right? Looking beneath the hood and in showing people what's really there. I mean, there are certain things like even with this story that didn't necessarily make it into the book where, you know, I was somewhat judicious with the way I used information because I was actually being sensitive to what was going on. I'm a parent. He was somebody's son. So I, of course, am going to take anything seriously. Like with that, he was a friend, you know what I mean? He was super close to so many people. And, um, I wasn't that interested in how he died. I was more interested in how he lived. So most of the book is about that, right? When you read it, you're like, holy shit, what the fuck is this? Like, how is the first hundred pages? He's not even five years old yet or something like that. <laughs> no, he's, he's older than five. But <laughs> I was thinking about stuff like what was, you know, youth like? What is your teenage years like? What are the things that make you? Okay, we know where this ended, but where does it start? I wanted to know more about the origin, so I went back even beyond him and I was like let's go into this neighborhood like what is this about the president's walking around in his neighborhood at one point right long before he was born but unlike if the president ever walked down my street I'm pretty sure that would have a pretty big effect on you know how I felt growing up I started like wanting to unearth some of that and that also contributed to who he became so it was important to kind of dig under the hood there as well
0: You talked earlier about how the story of people's reactions online kind of would become part of the story, as did Mac's own presence online. So so in what way did the story of his rise kind of feel like a reflection of that technological and cultural moment in which he lived, that moment in hip hop? And also, could you talk a little bit about that social media and music industry landscape that he was navigating through?
2: Well, I think he was a digital native. He came up in an age where the internet was pretty much second nature to him. So a lot of these social media platforms, he didn't really need a lot of motivation to engage with them. Twitter was something he was on early. We talk about in the book blogging, right? That was something I don't think a lot of people were aware of, that he had that.
1: I had forgotten about that moment when artists had blogs. I guess some of them still do, but I had forgotten that was such a thing.
2: Right. that It was like a completely forgotten era. Like Drake had a blog, J. Cole had a blog uh, that he no longer has. And on those blogs, you can see a lot of um, hopes and dreams. Really like kind of isolate on what was going through this person's mind at that time. So he was doing a lot of sharing at a young age. I think he was kind of living in public already. If you go look at those entries... They read like diary entries, you know, they're like, I'm thinking about going to college. What am I doing? Or like a lot of questioning, almost like a live journal or a medium post or some shit nobody would ever look at. (laughs) But he happened to become successful. So they're kind of these things you can isolate on and say, oh, wow, what's like, look at this. Ustream, which was a precursor to the moment we're in now, Instagram Live, we could just go on and start attracting fans from day one. I think he was really good at understanding that attention was currency. And the more you did to entertain people online, whether that was music or that was some other type of content, a tweet, a Vine, the more he engaged with that naturally, by the way, he was a natural like performer. I don't think he was putting in a lot of effort to make the Vines. I don't think he was having a lot of difficulty doing any of that stuff. He was a naturally gifted and charismatic person who was like born to do what he was doing, which was perform. That is repeated by so many people in the book. You know, he was a clown. He was this, he was that. He was still using like Blackberry. Like the iPhone didn't even exist yet. <laughs> you know, when you really think about the technology, <laughs> how crude this stuff was. A
1: lot of my MySpace,
2: my space, right? Um, the MySpace thing in and of itself was, question in my mind, because I didn't know if anybody knew what MySpace was anymore. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like a little blip on the radar of music history, you know, say 2005 or four, until about, say, 2008 or nine, around 2009 is when it seemed to be tapering off. But in that like little four years, it was like the TikTok of its day. And everybody was blowing up on there. There's so many artists that kind of Kind of got their start with that. And then YouTube, right, itself was not necessarily in its infancy because it was a very robust platform at that time. But remember, like viral dances and stuff were really the thing that, you know, was big. You would have somebody who went viral, you know, doing a routine, and then other people would do the routine and people would copy it and shit like that. Now you have Mac, he's kind of like in that world, but he's doing his own original stuff. You know, and they talk in the book about like, how do we create a little central hub? How do we just keep this going? But it's not like viral videos and shit like that. His friend, J talks about this. He says like, it's like a book. You can just go and start folding back the pages and just kind of go through history. I'm sure he saw other people doing that. He says other people were doing it. It was a thing at that time. So he completely took advantage of the technological movement. I think you see that starting to come back and haunt him a little bit as the environment in social media became more toxic. You fast forward six, seven years, he's in this relationship with Ariana. The fan hives are much bigger. They're much more territorial. They're arguing with each other. And there's a lot more toxicity in that space. Trump is kind of still around and whatever kind of freedom that existed online in those spaces kind of doesn't really exist anymore. At that time, 2010, you know, tweets weren't even indexed. You couldn't even search them. They basically were a thing that existed, but they kind of came and went and people would just say anything. It wasn't uncommon for, you know, people to just be drunk on Twitter fucking around and it was fun you know, people joking, way less politically correct. It was just an interesting time period. Also, the blogosphere was very negative at that time, but Twitter was negative, but fun. It was like an extension of blogging, which was all molded in the Perez Hilton sort of fashion. Perez Hilton is also like a little bit of a blip on this radar, but that was the environment, very negative, you know, celebrities kind of doing trashy things and here you have like this kid he's like very joyful and doing rap shit and and people just kind of sunk into that it's 2006 2007 that's totally different now it's like every instagram story is like a post on like you know some gossip blog ariana's doing this ariana's doing that max doing this blah 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 and people start projecting this narrative onto it that maybe is not real you know Haven't seen so-and-so on the gram in a while. Are they still together? It's all this like speculative shit. It's like fan fiction, you know? And it's kind of what happens when you live your life through these platforms.
0: It's interesting because in so many ways, it's almost become this hyper-warped version Of that, like these little blips we were saying with like Prez Hilton. People are so quick to get up in arms to push back about anything negative about their favorite celebrity or artist. I'm I'm just thinking of we we had the writer Cord Jefferson on a few episodes back, and he used to work for Gawker and was saying how you know Gawker obviously got destroyed because of you know sort of their celebrity gossip stuff. But at the same time, you now have Instagrams that are like what is it called? Dumois. Yes. That's like, you know. That's literally just anybody can submit pictures of celebrities wherever. And then the comment section hypothesizes about whatever might be going on in those pictures. So it's like this like twisted, democratized
2: version. But it's interesting because now you have to throw into the mix the journalist who is on Twitter, you know, basically singing for their supper, tweeting links to their work, trying to find work, right? Right. And now they're a public personality. They have to be. Now they're like sort of little micro-celebrities. Twitter in and of itself, though, I have to say, as somebody who does not use Twitter anymore, other than you know I've returned just to do what I need to do around this book, I actually think Twitter has no use. It serves no function. Its only function is to send you down a rabbit hole of bullshit. It comes back to this thing. It's a third-grade conversation. You know, and whatever you're doing gets reduced to that. And it's like, nobody sees that the people who are talking right now have journalism careers. They don't know that you've been doing this for almost 20 years. You just got reduced to what you tweeted three days ago. And somebody quote tweets that and and it becomes this whole meta narrative about you're this or you're that. You know, you just have to let the work speak for itself. On your tombstone, it's not going to say he tweeted or she tweeted or they tweeted a lot, right? (laughs) It's not going to say any of those fucking things. And it's a great tool because I know people all over the world through Twitter. I've done other things in my life that I have Twitter to thank for, you know, like with people literally on the other side of the earth. Like I've been swimming in the Indian Ocean off of like something I like tweeted one night at one o'clock in the morning, (laughs) connecting with other creative people. But There's also a level to which it's like there's diminishing returns, you know, case in point, like with whatever I'm dealing with now. It's like there's no point, right? The returns are diminishing. The work is is positive. The work will do what it needs to do. It'll get where it needs to go. And even if it don't go where it needs to go, the work itself was its own reward.
0: Amen. I want to go back to the IRL a little bit. In in what way was the story, the story of a city? How did Pittsburgh shape the artist that Mac Miller became
2: and how did he impact that city in turn? Well, I mean, I tried to learn as much about the city as I could. I went there multiple times and I, I was really impressed with the city. I was like, I like this place, you know, good vibe, people, super chill, very, you know, into sports I could see driving around – you could drive through Pittsburgh in about 10 minutes, which anybody who grows up in New York or lives in New York knows that you can't even drive down a block in 10 minutes, you know what I'm saying, let alone through the whole city. So that was like in and of itself kind of fascinating. I was like, why is this city so empty, right? Like what the fuck is going on here? Why are there so few people? Then there was a lot of bridges. So I kind of like got really interested in just the construction of the place and, and where people lived. And I became like almost like a, you know, urban anthropologist in some sense, right? Just trying to figure out like, was this like an immigrant community? Like who's here? And This is little Italy. Do any Italians still live here? Like what's up with this? You know, because we know in, in New York City, everything changes, you know, like the Chinatown that exists now is not the Chinatown of when I was a kid. The Little Italy is a fraction of what it was. So I was trying to understand, like, what are the people like and what are the changes in the community? In his neighborhood, the community doesn't appear to have changed that much. The evolution of the neighborhood seems very stuck, you know, in one place, which is a positive. You know, the strength of a community can speak to how often it, it turns over. <laughs> because that means the people are in it are, that are in it are very deep-rooted. They're very close. They're not going to let outsiders in and just fucking, you know, level a Victorian house and put a condo there. <laughs> it's also a suburban neighborhood inside of the city, right? The city around it is fast paced. Even though it's not super populated, I mean, it's still like a city. Whereas his neighborhood is like, looks like it's suburb, but it's inside. That is really unique. It's kind of like if I was to compare it to, say, a Brooklyn or something. I would maybe compare it to like Ditmas Park. Brooklyn is this sprawling metropolis, and then you have Ditmas Park, which is there, which just has these old houses, mm-hmm. and everybody that lives there is like a, an academic or an historian or something, and just has this, you know, really interesting, deep rooted history there. His neighborhood kind of reminded me of that a lot.
1: And how do you think that it influenced him
2: as an artist? I think there was a de- desire to see things outside of the neighborhood. It's quaint. It's very idyllic and peaceful. But as all neighborhoods have, they have the parts of them that don't match up with what's actually going on. And I think all people, whether they're rich or they're poor, or they live in a nice neighborhood or not so nice neighborhood, have problems. And they have things that they're dealing with and I think that his neighborhood was very much like that, you know, so I don't want to make his neighborhood seem any greater than any other neighborhood. But I do think that the quaintness inspired in him a desire to get out of it. He comes from a very loving environment, but love in and of itself can be very constricting. And in the history of music, right. There are people who come from pretty decent backgrounds, sometimes, you know, middle-class or upper middle-class and the, the, presentation of danger is attractive it's like i i want to get the fuck out of here this this is too nice for me right it's nice but it's like boring you know what i mean i don't think he was old enough to realize that boring can be really beautiful and i do think he totally loved his neighborhood he never said a bad word about the neighborhood or pittsburgh in interviews or in song but the the city was territorial, did not have a lot of hip-hop that was out there. There was a lot of difficulty at that time getting you know any attention. You had this label, Rostrum, that was making moves. Wiz Khalifa was blowing up, respected on a large scale. And then he was kind of coming in his footsteps. And I tried to illustrate that in the book. And some of his friends do speak to whether that was... You know, did they need the label? It's all speculative. Just like, do we need these guys? Maybe we would have got signed without them. But ultimately, they were having success. They had a model for how to break an artist that they had perfected over many years with Wiz, probably about five years. And then they kind of slotted Mac into that. You know, they were like, okay, this worked for Wiz. Let's do this with Mac. Oh, He got the freshman cover. Let's get back to freshman cover. Oh, he did the Highline Ballroom and that was a game changer for him. Let's let him do the Highline (laughs) Ballroom. And it was like a little bit of a formula. But even though there was some crossover at the end of the day, right, they were never gonna be the same thing, you know, because they just were not the same people and they didn't have the same audience.
0: That's it for the free version of this episode. Up ahead, we talk about the role of the biographer in the internet era how Mac's story was emblematic of the psychological pressures faced by artists in the modern music industry, and much more. Get all the goods by subscribing to The Culture Journalist for just five bucks a month. This episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Dominic. Our theme music is by Mark Donica. For more on Paul's book and other work, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And if you like what you're hearing, share us with friends or leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help support independent journalism.